Thousands of San Diegans have already gotten a COVID booster shot. I would caution people to just have a little bit more patience. We're very, very close to getting a, a real solid recommendation. I'm Christina Kim, in for Jade Heineman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A federal downtown prison was set to close, but it isn't. The contract for Western Region was supposed to be up next week, so it should be closing next week. But there was an announcement this week that it's received a six-month extension. There's a statewide effort to provide more artists with a living wage. And we close this season's KBBS summer music series with the Gospels and Spirituals of the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Choir. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. As health officials warn of the possibility of a looming fifth wave of COVID this fall, the issue of waning vaccine effectiveness continues to be front of mind for many Americans. Just yesterday, the FDA approved a third dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for seniors and high-risk groups, while a CDC approval is expected to provide further guidance within the next few days. However, according to reporting in the San Diego Union-Tribune, thousands of San Diegans have already sought out their booster shots ahead of official guidance. Dr. Christian Ramers is the Assistant Medical Director with Family Health Centers, and he also sits on San Diego County's Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group, and he joins us now. Dr. Ramers, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Christina, for having me. First, the FDA has approved booster shots for those who are immunocompromised, but the UT is reporting that an estimated 17,000 people who are not immunocompromised may have gotten boosters. What are your thoughts on that? I just want to go through the processes that that have been set up. You know, these are, are, I think, really cautious and measured ways that we have had very good drug and vaccine safety through this country uh, through many decades. And usually what happens is if the FDA does an extensive review of the data before they change recommendations or before they change the indications or the labeling of any particular product. And then typically that goes right over to the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which gets much more into the details to give clinicians guidance about what what is their official recommendation. We realize that uh, people are are desperate and there's a huge demand for people to get booster doses, uh, mostly because of what's been seen in Israel and, and the concerns of waning immunity. I would caution people to just have a little bit more patience. We're very, very close to getting a, a real solid recommendation. Um, and there's a couple of reasons why going out on your own and getting an additional dose might be problematic. Um, the first is that we haven't fully studied all the different combinations. 
and we like to stick to where the data leads us. Right now, we only have information on the Pfizer booster dose, and uh, the FDA has not yet reviewed any other uh, combinations such as Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson. So we just need to wait until we have more guidance. And secondly, if something, if an adverse event were to occur, such as an anaphylactic reaction or a, or a vaccine injury, you know, that patient who went out on their own and, and may have uh, falsified their information to get that third dose or the vaccine provider is kind of out on a limb in terms of liability protections. So what I'm hearing you say is that people should really wait for official guidance from leading health organizations before deciding to get a third shot on their own. Yes, and I want to be clear what's already been vetted and approved, and that is a third dose for those who are legitimately uh, immunocompromised. That means moderate to severe immunosuppression, either from cancer chemotherapy, from a solid organ transplant, or something like that. That's already free and clear, and people are welcome to do that in their doctor's offices. Uh, the more recent recommendation, which you referred to, that the CDC is currently deliberating on with, with meetings right as we speak, has to do with third doses only for those that received Pfizer vaccine. Now, I would urge people to be a little bit more patient uh, if they received Moderna or Johnson & Johnson because that data is being vetted and being reviewed. And there are still many unanswered questions. For example, there are several studies now showing that Moderna may, prov may provide um, more long-lasting protection than Pfizer. And so a booster dose may be less necessary. Again, we have to take a look at the data before we can go with those recommendations. You've alluded to this already, but can you tell us a little more about what evidence we have about waning immunity among the already vaccinated? Yeah, it's a complicated question because if you just look at one piece of the elephant, so to speak, which is the easiest to measure antibody levels, you can show that antibody levels are going to decline with time. Now, that may be shocking to people, but it's actually a normal process in human immunology. Every that virus and bacteria that you've encountered, you're going to develop antibodies, and it's natural for those antibodies to wane with time. If that didn't occur, your blood would be like cement. It would be full of all these proteins. Your body has developed mechanisms in order to flex up and flex down the levels of antibodies as long as you create immunological memory. That's partially why people who have been fully vaccinated may not be completely protected from infection, but they are very well protected from severe disease because they are able to develop that response very quickly within three to four days of encountering the pathogen again. As we discussed, people are already seeking the booster, but what do you say to patients who were already hesitant to get vaccinated in the first place, and now they're questioning the need for a third shot? Yeah, I think the message needs to be loud and clear that these shots are, are delivering what they mainly were intended to do, and that is to save lives and to keep people out of the hospital. I think we're debating around the edges about this, whether the series should be two shots or three shots uh, from the get-go, and then whether boosters are going to be necessary. But all you have to do is look at the numbers in the county or in the state or in the country to show that unvaccinated people are dying and, and getting hospitalized at, at much, much higher rates than those that are vaccinated. That's really the proof of how good these vaccines are actually working at keeping people from getting seriously ill. And I think we should maybe change our expectation a little bit about what the vaccine can deliver. I think it was a little surprise at the beginning to see these numbers of 95% protection from a vaccine. I mean, we were hoping it would be 50% protective uh, in the beginning um, in order to be authorized. So the expectation was this is going to create some crazy invisible force field that's going to protect people from getting infected at all. That's really not realistic. And what we've seen over time is that people can, uh, if they are exposed to COVID, especially with the Delta variant, which is so much more contagious, if they're exposed and they get the virus in their nose or in their mouth, that they still can mount a very, very good immune response that protects them from getting very ill. 
As I mentioned, we are, you know, fearing that we're reaching a fifth wave this fall. I know a lot of families spent the holidays apart last year because of the pandemic. Do you anticipate similar guidance about limiting travel and large indoor gatherings this year? I do. I think this is going to be tough because there is such a desire to get back to the way things were. But we need to ask the public to to make reasonable decisions about risky um contacts, essentially. Um, We do have the protection of a a large proportion of the population that's been vaccinated. I think what most people are very concerned about is that as it gets colder, people spend more time inside, that we're going to see more transmission. And then the twindemic, as it's been called, uh, if we have a bad flu year at the same time as we have a bad COVID year, uh, that's going to be a major problem. So so public health authorities are really urging us to get flu shots again this year. Um, Last year, flu took kind of a break because people were on lockdown and and not really interacting with each other too much. Uh, We've already seen flu transmission start in San Diego County. So I think uh, we're, we're a little bit worried about having that be on top of COVID-19. I've been speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers, Assistant Medical Director with Family Health Centers. Dr. Ramers, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. California health officials are now requiring that people who work in high-risk medical settings be fully immunized against COVID-19. That includes employees of hospitals, nursing homes, and doctors' offices. But as KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, it does not include care workers in private homes. Even though he got vaccinated three months ago, Tim Jin doesn't feel safe in his own home. He wants everyone who comes through his front door to be vaccinated, but he doesn't get that choice. When the agency sends me a new worker to help me, the first thing I ask is if they are vaccinated and we go from there. But there is always a risk. Jin has cerebral palsy and doesn't have the use of his arms or hands. That voice you're hearing comes from an iPad, which is mounted next to his feet on his electric wheelchair. He communicates mainly by typing out sentences with his toes. I am capable of using my feet as if they were like your hands. Jin is 46 and moved out of his family home 20 years ago. He lives by himself in an apartment in Orange County. He types and opens doors with his feet, but needs help with everyday tasks like eating and getting dressed. Up to six health aides come in and out of his home every day. Due to my disability, I can't do anything like cooking, eating, using the restroom, or even using the microwave on my own. I am totally dependent on others to assist me. If an aide isn't vaccinated, Jin requires them to wear a mask. But he says you can't socially distance from the person brushing your teeth. The staff who come into my home should be vaccinated. It's that simple. It's a matter of life and death. Studies have shown that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities like Jin are more vulnerable to the coronavirus. That's why Jin wants to see in-home care workers added to the long list of California health workers who are required to be vaccinated. They don't understand that our lives and well-being are far more important than trying to fill in a shift. A vaccine mandate could put a squeeze on employers. Lori Shepard is the director of operations at an agency that provides in-home health aides to people with developmental disabilities. Shepard doesn't know how many of her staff are vaccinated, and she doesn't require weekly COVID-19 tests. Some workers have told her if there's a mandate, they'll quit. We would definitely lose 20 percent of our workforce. 
There are no licensing requirements for either the agencies or their staff, though the state provides funding for those health workers. Shepard says wages are low, making it difficult to recruit new people to the industry. Almost all of our staff work for similar companies in order to just, you know, pay the rent because we all have to pay such poor wages. What we have here is two marginalized populations. That's Scott Landis, a sociologist at Syracuse University. People with intellectual and development or disability who are a vulnerable health population in need of services. And direct service providers who many times are minority women and are underpaid, undervalued, and not always afforded the respect. And we're asking one part of this equation to maybe get a vaccine that they have hesitancy about. Landy says it's a difficult balance. Consistent COVID-19 testing rather than a vaccine mandate may help retain workers who are reluctant to get the shot. I just fear that if you put one in place, you could go from staffing crisis to staffing catastrophe. When asked if in-home care workers will be included in the vaccine mandate, the state health department would only say it will continue to monitor the situation. Without a mandate, it's up to individual employers like Debbie Davis, who felt she had no choice but to require her employees to get vaccinated. As a registered nurse, she spent months fielding questions from staff. I literally spent hours and hours and hours doing the research with the CDC website and sharing it with them. And I think that was helpful because people would feel like they could ask me whatever they wanted to ask me, and it wasn't a dumb question. Out of her 80 employees who provide home caregiving services, just one chose to leave the job rather than get vaccinated. We can kind of be confident in saying that it's 100% compliance, which feels really good. A vaccine mandate is possible, she says, if people have access to good information. That story was from KPCC's Jackie Fortier. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Christina Kim. Jade Heinemann is away today. A privately operated federal detention facility in downtown San Diego has apparently gotten a new lease on life. The Western Region Detention Facility, operated by the GEO Group, was one of a class of private prisons targeted for extinction by President Biden. But the facility recently announced it's been given a six-month contract extension by the Federal Marshals Service. And after that, the facility may find a new home in a small town in Kern County. Joining me with more on this story is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Christina Davis. And Christina, welcome. Thanks for having me. This is a privately run, for-profit prison facility. Where is it located in downtown San Diego, and what purpose does it serve? 
So uh, the detention facility took over the old county jail downtown. People will recognize it as being part of the old county courthouse complex. Um, And most of that was actually, it's been torn down over the past year or so. And this was kind of attached to it. And it's, it's just a very plain, nondescript, pretty old looking building. And the capacity is 770 beds. And what the facility does is houses mostly pre-trial detainees. So these are people who have been charged with federal crimes, but they have not been convicted of those crimes. They are basically being detained while their case is going through the court system. President Biden has issued an executive order earlier this year to eliminate the use of private prisons in the federal criminal justice systems. What were his reasons for doing that? His um, executive order is it's meant to phase out the federal relationship with these private prisons. And um, the reasoning that he gives behind that is really more of like a criminal justice reform aim. Um, he talks about using this as a way to decrease incarceration levels so the criminal justice system can turn its focus more onto rehabilitation efforts. And he also does note a 2016 report by the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General, which does say that many of these privately operated detention facilities do not maintain the same levels of safety and security as those run by the federal government. So it seems that the Western Region Detention Facility in San Diego should be closing, but it's not, is it? Well, and that's that's a little bit to be uh, seen. So what the executive order does is it says that the Department of Justice cannot um, renew any contracts with these private prisons. And uh, the contract for uh, Western Region was supposed to be up next week, right? So it, it should be closing next week. But there was an announcement this week that it's received a six-month extension. And did the Federal Marshal Service, who gave that extension, give any reason for it? No. Basically, the GEO Group announced this extension, but did not say what was behind the extension. The marshals um, did not respond to me when I asked them for a reason. I'm, I'm not sure if it's to try to work out a longer deal or if it's due to COVID. We're just really not sure. Now, you've also found out there are potentially long-term plans underway to keep the facility open. Tell us about those. Right. So, like I said, the executive order prohibits the DOJ and the U.S. Marshals are under the DOJ from contracting with these private prisons. So what appears to be happening is negotiations are in the works with a local government um, and this is the city of McFarland. It's it's a very small town um, up in Kern County. It's 250 miles north of San Diego. Basically, what would happen is the U.S. Marshals would contract with this city of McFarland for the prison to run it. And then the city would turn around and subcontract the services out to Geo Group, to the private prison operator. So it basically is having a local government act as a middleman. And it's, you know, appears to be a a workaround to the executive order. And would federal detainees from San Diego be housed up there before trial? No, I mean, it would just be something that's on paper. So basically, the facility would remain open and kind of operating as it is. It would just on paper show that the city 250 miles north of us has the contract to run the facility that is then subcontracted to the GEO group. 
And how much could this small town potentially make out of this prison deal? So the deal would um, get this small town $500,000 as an administrative fee is, is the proposal that's out there right now. So you said this whole deal would be kind of a workaround of the president's executive order. Is there any watchdog group that's objecting to this move by GEO? Yes, absolutely. Um, the ACLU, the three chapters in California, sent a letter to the White House this week basically saying, you know, hey, we're, we're seeing that this facility is not closing um, on the date that it should. And there's also seems to be these negotiations and, and we were, they were strongly urging President Biden to basically adhere to the spirit of the executive order and to, you know, not allow the marshals to um, accept this kind of contract. Are there any other federal detention facilities in San Diego that are privately owned? There is another one. Um, it's uh, out in Otay Mesa. It's the Otay Mesa Detention Center, I think is what it's called. And it's run by a different company called Core Civic. And that detention center um, houses detainees for ICE. So these are, these are people who are uh, just being detained for civil immigration violations, um, like kind of where they're waiting to be, you know, deported or whatever. Um, and it, but it also does house criminal marshals detainees as well. Is that facility also scheduled to close? Well, that facility would um, fall under the executive order. I have to be honest, I'm a little unclear when that um, facility's contract is up. I've, I've seen some things uh, that say it's up at the end of this year, but I think that that might have also been extended until 2024 right before the executive order went into effect. Um, so it, it might have another few years uh, of life and, you know, maybe things will change during that time period as well. Okay. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter, Christina Davis. Christina, thank you so much. Thank you. This week, the San Diego City Council cleared the way for another attempt to revitalize the city's Midway District. The 48-acre site was officially declared surplus land, and notice will be given to affordable housing and other developers in the next couple of weeks. The City Council's action is an effort to correct a major error that derailed the previous Midway redevelopment deal earlier this year. Now city officials are being careful to ensure that all state laws are being met so a redevelopment project can finally get off the ground. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a nutshell, I think the problem with the old redevelopment deal with Brookfield Properties was it didn't specifically commit to including affordable housing. Was that it? Not exactly. So the problem was actually a process problem. So this deal, which wasn't actually technically a deal, and we can kind of get into that, but this um, arrangement with Brookfield, it was broken from the minute that the city put out the RFP. So the city should have never went out to solicit a request for proposals because that was in violation of this new state process that they're supposed to follow when they want to sell or lease any government-owned land. So it was it was broken from the beginning. 
Okay, so they're approaching it in a different way this time. San Diego City Council made the formal designation of surplus land for this 48 acres. What does the designation of surplus land have to do with it? So it has everything to do with it. And so going back to what I just said, the process was broken from the beginning originally. This time around, the city is following a process that has been prescribed by California's Housing and Community Development Agency. And so what HCD is, is they came up with some guidelines. And these are not guidelines, mind you. These are actual rules that government agencies must follow when they want to dispose of, meaning lease or sell, a piece of property. And at the very start of that process, the city has to take an action and either declare the land surplus land or exempt surplus land. In declaring it surplus land, that means the city no longer has use for it. And then that land has to then go through the next process of being offered first to affordable housing developers. Now, if you go back and the Brookfield plan, which you say was basically no good from the very beginning, but it included new sports arena, parks, retail. Is the city still looking for that kind of redevelopment for the Midway District? Absolutely. The city wants something mixed use, something that's going to bring a lot of vibrancy to the area. I think the major difference now is that the emphasis has to be on affordable housing and a sports arena, right? So those are going to be the two kind of really big factors in how the the city makes its decision going forward. So based on the process that they're in now, anybody that responds to what's called the notice of availability, which is supposed to go out soon, anybody responds to that has to come back with a program that includes a minimum of 25% of housing units that are reserved for lower income families. And and then there's some other restrictions on top of that. So let's say you're a developer, you come in and you you, uh, pitch 25% of 100 units, that's not gonna cut it either because they want the maximum number of affordable units as well. So the focal point is really gonna be on this affordable housing component, but the city is also um, very committed to a new or refurbished sports arena. So that's going to be a big factor as well. But of course, they want multi-use, they want parks, they want retail. They want something that's going to bring people in and activate the area and, and kind of, you know, serve as a catalyst for reforming the whole Midway District. Do we have any idea what groups may respond to this notice of availability? So Brookfield has told me, um, so Brookfield Properties, the, you know, the original winner of, of the bid uh, process from, from the first time around, they're back. Um, they would like to participate in this process. Um, I believe that they're also back with ASM, which is the operator of the sports arena right now. So in, uh, that proposal will likely include a new sports arena. Um, and they've, they've also teamed up with an affordable housing developer. And so I expect to hear more about that plan in the next week or two, um, Toll Brothers, which also bid on the first time around, but lost out to Brookfield, they're back. They have a new team. They're going by the name of Midway Village Plus. And then there's another group called Conam. They didn't participate the first time around, but they made a presentation to the Midway District um, Community Planning Group. Um, so they've they've kind of signaled their interest. And then I suspect there'll be, there'll be other people as well. Um, maybe other arena developers, maybe other housing developers. So, you know, we won't know for a couple of weeks, but those are the three that I know of right now. 
So this process is now just beginning. What's the time frame on this? When could we see uh, any plan be selected and maybe even be acted upon? It's, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think for some people in the community, it's still a very long time frame. So what happens now is the city will issue what's called a notice of availability. That will go out to a state vetted list of affordable housing builders. The city will evaluate uh, the proposals and most likely that initial um, process will kind of kick off at, at city council in the spring. So it's, it's really open-ended. I think the only thing that we know um, spring 2022, um, some of these proposals will likely go in front of city council. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove. And thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Maureen. The impacts of the coronavirus pandemic have not been spread equally among members of our community. Certain groups have suffered the consequences far more than others. That includes those in the arts and culture sector. Here's San Diego Museum Council Executive Director Bob Lehman. So many of us work independently uh, and project by project without protections like unemployment and health insurance uh, that you would get with working for a big corporation. Uh, We have to get rid of the idea of starving artists. People in the arts and culture need to have a living wage to and to provide for themselves and their families. A bill sitting on the governor's desk aims to do just that. I spoke with Chloe Veltman, arts and culture reporter at KQED, about the bill. Here's that interview. The California Creative Workforce Act is the first of its kind. What's the goal of this bill? Well, Christina, it aims to do two things. One, diversify California's arts and culture workforce. And two, provide jobs that pay a living wage to keep creative sector workers in California, where in many places the cost of living is so high. So what specifically would it do if it is in fact signed by the governor? The arts and culture sector is is one where things get done despite the traditionally low pay and the heavy reliance on volunteerism. So this legislation would earmark grants for creative sector employers to um, pay arts professionals an actual living wage in exchange for their services. And on the diversity front, it would offer paid apprenticeships to Californians who might otherwise feel excluded from pursuing arts and culture careers because of uh, financial or other constraints. So this sounds a lot like efforts taken during the Great Depression. Are those programs what's inspiring this bill? Yeah, there's a couple of programs historically that have inspired this bill. And and you're absolutely right, uh, Christina. One of the programs that inspired it is the well-known WPA Federal Art Project, which successfully put thousands of artists to work during the Great Depression. But it's also inspired by a lesser known but equally important program called the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, or CETA for short. This program provided full-time employment and training for more than 20,000 artists and arts support staff back in the 1970s. So I know your reporting also focused on the Bay Area, and I know here in San Diego as an urban area, we often have funding systems that kind of help enable the arts to flourish. What about rural areas? How is this program going to, for instance, reach more rural regions in San Diego County? So one of the ways it's going to do it is basically arts organizations, different arts businesses, and it remains to be seen which ones specifically, will be able to apply for grants. Uh, And those grants will be dispersed by the state um, to different arts councils or other types of 
of funding centers, should we say, and then people who run businesses will be able to, and, and nonprofits and such will be able to apply for those grants and then disperse them to either people who they employ or people who they want to train. So you don't have to be in a big urban center, as far as I understand it, to be able to get hold of this money eventually. So you've said, you know, this is really about getting artists a living rage. But I want to know, how significant is the arts industry to the state's economy? Oh, it's very significant, Christina. According to the National Assembly of State Arts Agencies, California's creative sector contributes more than $230 billion. That's 25% of the country's entire creative economy. Um, and uh, within California, that's, it represents 8% of the gross state product, about 800,000 jobs. So how was the industry impacted during the pandemic? It's been nothing short of devastating, honestly. According to this recent report by the Otis College of Art and Design, the pandemic impacted more than 500,000 creative sector jobs around the state in 2020 and caused a creative economy output loss of more than $140 billion over the year. Julie Baker, who's the executive director of California Arts Advocates, which co-sponsored this new bill, says this is why getting it passed is a matter of urgency. It's clear that we've got to make sure that that workforce is maintained in this state and grows. I know there's been criticism around this bill being too vague. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the opposition is to this bill? Yeah, despite the fact the bill has won overwhelming support in the Assembly and Senate, there are a few lawmakers who oppose it. Senator Patricia Bates, who's from down near your neck of the woods, uh, sent me a written statement via email saying, and I'll quote her, it does not specifically address who is eligible for the program, where the money will come from, and how that money will exactly be used, is what she said. That seems like a big one. Do we have a sense of how this program might be funded? Well, that's a really, really big question. So uh, according to Susan Rubio, who is the state senator who co-authored the bill, there's basically the process is, is the governor signs the bill into law, and then the state's Arts Council and Workforce Development Board are going to create guidelines for the program and then advocates will push for funding from the state budget. So it's going to be quite a process. And the idea is that they're going to try to start fairly small, sort of do a pilot project and grow from there, hopefully. What happens if Governor Newsom doesn't sign the bill? He does have until October 10th to do so. Will these efforts continue? Well, both Susan Rubio and Julie Baker of California Arts Advocates seem very determined. They both told me they're going to keep campaigning on behalf of arts and culture workers because of the devastating impact of COVID-19 on the creative workforce and the importance of this sector to our state's economy. A lot to keep an eye on. I've been speaking with Chloe Veltman, arts and culture reporter at KQED. Thank you so much, Chloe. You're very welcome, Christina. It's been fun. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Christina Kim. Jade Hindman is away today, but she hosted our last summer music series artist, and here's that celebration. In hard times, music can soothe our worried minds, and there's nothing quite like gospel music to uplift the spirit. Yeah. 
our last installment of the KPBS Summer Music Series, we're going to hear some wonderful gospel music and learn the history of Negro spirituals, the original American music that gave birth to so many genres we enjoy today. We'll be hearing music from San Diego's own Martin Luther King Jr. Community Choir, who since 1996 has been spreading the gospel around the world and funding scholarships for students. Joining me today is Ken Anderson, the founder and director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Choir San Diego and UCSD's Gospel Choir Director. Ken, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you are the director and founder of the MLK Community Choir and a professor who teaches the history of Black music. Can you give us some history on Negro spirituals and tell us how important they are to American music? Well, sure. The Negro spirituals, uh, songs that the slaves sung to communicate with each other, how and when and where they were going to get away, opportunities of freedom. The songs, uh, in the songs, you will find stories of um, the Jordan River, which is a code name for the Mississippi, the Ohio River, the Cincinnati Rivers, and leaders in the Bible, even God and Jesus, Moses, other leaders in the Bible, code name for people like Harriet Tubman. These were leaders in the Bible, were code names for the abolitionists and other workers. They were Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, just Americans everywhere working together to help slaves get away to free states, to Canada. I even learned of some even escaping to Europe. And when they sang about going home or the promised land or Beulah land, pretty much any good destination, this was a code name for freedom. So in these songs, they were actually communicating. And through this system of communication, the Underground Railroad helped them to get away. The Negro spiritual is also known as a code song, C-O-D-E. But not all of the songs were coded because when she was a child, she was sold away from her brothers and sisters. And that's why she sang, he's got my brothers and my sisters in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And when her baby was born, her baby was taken from her, sold to another plantation. And that's why she sang, he's got my little bitty baby in his hands got the whole world in his hands. Somehow or another, the, the slaves did come to an understanding that the churches in the South were abusing the Bible in order to justify slavery. So they didn't reject God and they, they didn't reject the Bible. They just rejected their, you know, their masters, their owners, those who were pro-slavery. So many of these songs, they were expressing faith in God. And some of the songs they're singing just encouraging one another. But when you get to songs like Steal Away and Swing Low Sweet Chariot, there's a balm in Gilead. Let us break bread together on our knees and on and on. When you get to songs like this, they were actually communicating. This is when and where and how we're going to get away. 
Wow. And I think that's interesting because in, in the song that you mentioned, he's got the whole world in his hands. Many people, I think, uh, think of that song as a song of, of rejoicing. And really, it's a song that, that is talking about deep trauma. Deep trauma, and, but, but more to the point, encouragement in the midst of deep trauma. They would sing songs like, I'm so glad that trouble don't last always, or Lord, help me to hold out until my change comes, you know, and uh, things like that. They're encouraging one another to hold on, keep your hand on the plow, hold on. And, and even in this song, I'm finding encouragement in the middle because, you know, they were living in a terrible time and they were basically livestock. They were basically property. Families broken up, beaten and made to work, forced labor. So that song was, you know, it's lifting them up or encouraging them. Hmm. Now, how did you learn to sing and play music? Actually, I started in church, like a lot of other people. Uh, I was four years old when my mother taught me my first song, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. She taught me the melody and I found the notes around the melody to make harmony with it because I remembered what it sounded like in church. And that's when the family realized something was going on with me musically. And then when I was six, I began playing in church. It wasn't necessarily everything you wanted to hear <laughs> from someone playing the piano. And uh, the, the other kind of, from what I, I don't remember this to tell you the truth, but this is what I'm told. And there were many people in the congregation, if not all, saying, please get the kid off the piano. The pastor said, leave him alone. He's the only one showing any interest. We'll keep singing. He'll keep playing. He'll catch on. So when I get to heaven, I owe him a great debt of gratitude. But I started playing in church when I was six. Uh, children's choir, came the children's choir director when I was about 15 or 16. By the time I was 17 or 18, I became the head of the music program. And from there, I've been directing and singing and playing. There you have it. And, and what's the mission of the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Choir? We enjoy singing this music and bringing it to others and seeing the joy and how it lifts people when we go everywhere we travel, even around the world. And Dr. Martin Luther King expressed this sentiment in one of his great speeches where he had dreamed to see the different races together singing the old Negro spirituals in the Martin Luther King Community Choir in UCSD Gospel Choir in particular. We live that dream. One of the practical impacts we have on the community is we provide scholarships for graduating high school seniors exclusively in the visual and performing arts. Can anyone participate in the choir? If you're breathing at regular intervals and you can get through the door, you're in. <laughs> and how many members? Tell me about, I mean, how many people are in this choir? <laughs> well, we average, we sustain a number between 80 and 100. And the choir has performed for different audiences around the world. What's it like uh, taking the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. and this uh, uniquely American music to other countries? Uh, it's awesome. It's, it's really awesome. Taking it around the world is just like taking it around America. Very few people, even in the Black church, know the history of the music. So I always give uh, the history of the music. I always educate on the music before we begin. If it's during the months of January and February where we're observing Martin Luther King's birthday or Black history... I'll give a more comprehensive and some concerts actually have me lecture for a few minutes on it so I can give them a, at least a history and understanding of where the music is coming from. This music comes from a very dark time of American history, just like any other country. America has embarrassing past as well. But the greatness for any country is to be able to recognize 
when you're wrong, repent and improve and grow. And then that's built into America, the ability to do that. And that's a wonderful thing. The same thing I do in America, I do in the other seven countries we've been to. Number eight was on the way and then the pandemic hit. We were going to Canada, but we've been, you know, Germany, Prague, Rome. We actually sang at the Vatican. And uh, we were at the mass uh, of the late Pope, his last Easter mass. That was Worship the Lord by Martin Luther King Jr. Community Choir San Diego. So so how does this music fit into this particular moment that we're living in right now? I don't know that gospel music fits into a particular moment so much as it fits into life. Gospel music speaks to every aspect of life, even the, even the time of life we're in now, because the music is born out of hard times. I mean, this is not the first time America's been in a hard time. There are times when America seems to be doing very well, but there's always a part of America that's not doing so well. And so the music speaks to every part of life, whether you're rejoicing or you're sad, whether you're succeeding or you're failing and need to be encouraged to keep going. As long as you're alive, you can still make it, you know, as long as you keep hope. It's very easy to lose hope because there's just a barrage of things that come at you. I mean, if you watch an hour's broadcast, you might get some good news towards the end. They save the kitten from a tree or a puppy out of a pipe. And then, you know, they kind of fake shuffle their papers while they smile and tell you to have a good night after they just told you the whole world is about to go under. And people are stressed out what's going on with the pandemic and what's going on with the government and what's going on overseas. And we haven't had time to talk about what's going on in their own homes and in their own lives and relationships and in their own hearts and minds. And so there's a lot in this world to stress you out, but there's also a lot in this world to be thankful for and to rejoice over and just enough, you can just keep going if you can just hold out till your change comes. And I've been speaking with Ken Anderson, the founder and director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Choir San Diego and UCSD Gospel Choir Director. Ken Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. That was Midday Edition host Jade Heineman. Catch MLK CCSD's Ken Anderson and Dale Fleming as part of the Bodhi Tree Concert's 10th anniversary celebration. That's Saturday, September 25th at 7 p.m. at St. James-by-the-Sea Episcopal Church. Go to kpbs.org slash summer music series for the full interview and for a video interview. In this place,